Welcome and thanks for joining us on The Pivot, a new audio series brought to you by Futures Without Violence. In these short podcasts, we'll be speaking with leaders in the work to end violence against children and their families. In particular, we explore the myriad ways that systems can be transformed in order to provide community support to adult and child survivors in a meaningful way. We have prioritized guidance and practices that advance equity and remove barriers for the best possible outcomes for the most marginalized and oftentimes excluded. We see this as a crucial pivot away from the punitive approaches that often form part of institutions and a new opportunity to connect families to holistic and culturally relevant community supports. Our aim is to generate a national discussion about how we can transform our mindset and practices to improve child and family safety. We hope that you will use these short yet meaningful dialogues to engage in discussions within your own organizations. I'm your host, Wendy Mota. Let's dive in. Good afternoon, good morning, depending on where you are. My name is Wendy Mota. My pronouns are ella, she, her, hers. And I am your host for the Pivot Towards Promising Futures. And I'm so excited to be joined today by one expert in the topic and the field that we'll be covering today. We are so excited to be focusing on the Indian Child Welfare Act and providing folks more information on ways that this is relevant, not only for Native American children and families, but to all of us. So our guest today is Mary Catherine Nagel. And MK, can you kindly introduce yourself? Yes. Good afternoon, everyone. So nice to be here today. My name is Mary Catherine. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. I'm an attorney. Uh, I do a lot of work as counsel for the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center, and a lot of my work focuses on ending violence against Native women and children. Thank you so much, MK. We're so excited to have you here. You know, MK, when I think about this topic and where we are as a nation in terms of the Indian Child Welfare Act. I actually think about my mother. My mom was a single mom, and over 30 years ago, she was actually diagnosed with breast cancer. She had three small children. And believe it or not, her biggest worry was not about her diagnosis or her illness, right? It was about if something happened to her, who would take care of her children, who would comb their hair, who would feed them, where they would live, what language they would speak, whether they would stay together, and who would house them. And this mattered to her because obviously as a mom, I imagine she wanted her kids to stay together and to be placed with someone who understood their needs, their primary language, their culture, um, maybe someone who looked like them, someone who prayed like them. And it ended up working out that her oldest sister, my aunt, would eventually adopt us via kinship placement. But this is definitely not the case for many moms that could be either in a similar a similar predicament or not. 
I am grateful that I was raised in a loving and culturally relevant and safe environment. But I also imagine that this is not necessarily the predicament for many Indian children who are sadly placed outside of their culture and their communities. Today, we're going to talk a little bit, MK, about the Indian Child Welfare Act, or otherwise known as ICWA, the federal law that was passed not too long ago to be able to keep Indian children with Indian families. And as a matter of fact, it was uh, passed in response to compelling evidence of the very high number of Indian children that were being removed from their families, not only by public, but private agencies. And they were being placed in non-Indian families. So I imagine that prior to the passage of ICWA, there was a high number. I've read, uh, you know, 75, 80% of Indian families were losing their children to the foster care system. What's interesting about ICWA is that last fall, it went to the Supreme Court. And next month, June 2023, we are expected to hear the Supreme Justice's uh, ruling on the case. And, you know, you have experience firsthand with this. But I wondered if you can tell us a little bit about the Burkine and Holland case and what that means to uh, ICWA in this nation right now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I first of all, I just want to say I really appreciate your story and your sharing it because that is what the Indian Child Welfare Act does is it keeps... Indian children with their family as opposed to ripping them apart from their family. And, you know, I think that as many child welfare experts have stated, that's a best practice no matter what the identity of the child is. Obviously, we want that for our Indian children, but that should be the case for all children. If your home is not safe or if your parents are putting you up for adoption for whatever reason, you're best served if you can stay with someone in your family, even if it's a cousin or an auntie or a grandmother, than going to stay with complete strangers. And I think, especially for our marginalized communities here in the United States, also being able to stay with a, you know, with a family that shares your culture and identity and can keep you connected to who you are is going to really help that child not have that disruption that is actually a form of trauma. And... You know, I, I think that's a hard concept for some people to understand, which I, I find hard. Like, how is it hard for people to understand this? That, um, you know, if you're taking a child away from his or her parents, the best placement that you could find for them would be with a family member as opposed to strangers. And that's that's basically what ICWA does. And so the Brett Keen case is a challenge to the constitutionality of the Indian Child Welfare Act. That's the what we call as ICWA. Uh, the Indian Child Welfare Act was passed in 1978 by Congress. And the goal of that is what I just said, is to keep Indian families together. And of course, we recognize that, and this is a longer story for another podcast, you know, we've got so much trauma in our Native communities. We do have individuals that are unable to parent, and that's a real tragedy. And there's nothing in ICWA that requires children to stay in homes that are dangerous, where abuse takes place. In fact, the act certain uh, contemplates and provides procedures and policies for the termination of parents' rights when they're not able to parent. And that's, I've worked on cases where the tribal nation I represented, 
moved to terminate the parents' rights. And that's, no one wants to do that, but sometimes you have to. And what ICWA does is it does not mandate results. It provides procedures and guidelines that state courts have to follow when Indian children's placement and the Indian parents' rights are being adjudicated in state court. ICWA also provides that if we're talking about an Indian child on reservation lands, then Congress decided through ICWA to give exclusive jurisdiction to that tribal nation's court. So if you have an Indian child on tribal lands, their placement should be decided in the court of that tribal nation as opposed to um, somewhere in in a state court. And that's for many reasons, too, that affirms and upholds the inherent sovereignty of our nations and our right to decide what's best for our own children, just like the United States wouldn't want France coming in and deciding in in a United States court where an American citizen child should be placed. And so that's the basic premise of ICWA. And the plaintiffs in Brackeen are arguing that the Indian Child Welfare Act is unconstitutional for several reasons. They've sort of thrown everything on the wall and to see what will stick. And their main arguments go into two categories. One, that under the 10th Amendment, this is a state's rights issue, what happens to Indian children. And so that actually Congress didn't have constitutional authority, or if they did, they went too far with this and they infringed on states' rights under the 10th Amendment. And they're violating states' rights by requiring state courts to follow these policies and procedures when adjudicating cases related to the adoptive placement of Indian children or the termination of Indian parents' rights. That's like one main area of arguments, and they have more nuanced versions of those arguments in their complaint and in their briefing. The other main argument is that somehow the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause, as incorporated through the Fifth against the United States, prohibits the Congress from passing a law using the word Indian to classify citizens of tribal nations. These plaintiffs are making the argument that because the 14th Amendment Equal Protection protects categories of people who've been racially discriminated in the past, again, the 14th Amendment was passed to protect newly freed slaves, specifically, their argument, the Brackeens are arguing that the 14th Amendment precludes Congress from passing the Indian Child Welfare Act because Indian should be a race-based term that the 14th Amendment prohibits Congress from using. Now, the Supreme Court has actually taken that question up numerous times and has repeatedly over hundreds of years always said that Indian is a political classification because it refers to citizens of tribal nations that predate the United States. We, We sort of have this dual reality as Native people that we are citizens of sovereign nations that predate the United States. And we have people from all kinds of racial makeups. We have I mean, you can be a citizen of a tribal nation and look and appear, you know, racially as white passing. We have we have people who are citizens of tribal nations who are Indians under the law and who are African-American, Asian, you know, Hispanic. You name the ethnicity or the race that we have people who are, you know, like look and appear racially Native American. But at the end of the day, that's actually not the test for being Indian under federal law. The test for being Indian under federal law is, are you a citizen of a tribal nation that predates the United States? And the Supreme Court has repeatedly said that's not that's not a racial classification that triggers strict scrutiny under the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. That said, the law is on our side, but we'll see what the Supreme Court's going to do because When the Supreme Court takes up a case like this, where the questions have already been answered in in Indian countries' favor, 
it's usually not great because it means that maybe some of the new ju newer justices on court don't like the way the court has come down in the past and they're seeking to change that. And so I think there's a lot of alarm throughout Indian country right now about where this case will go and what the outcome will be. Wow. Thank you so much, MK. Uh, I, I don't think anyone or anything could have explained that better. I think about the deep history that this nation has with Native American children and families and communities and how there's so much that's unsaid and so much that needs to be said. So I'm so grateful for your explanation of this in such a comprehensive way. My next question is really about, do you, in your opinion, believe that there are any implications for other protected groups? So let's say, you know, God forbid that the ruling goes in favor of it being unconstitutional. Do you think this is just an issue for Native Americans in this nation, or are there any implications? What would, I guess, this type of ruling set a precedent for? Yeah, I think this is a great question. I think for us Native folks, immediately the problem would be that the way the founding framers of the U.S. Constitution wrote the Constitution, I mean, first of all, they used the word Indian in the Constitution. So it's it's kind of a little crazy to think that what the Brackeen parents, their adoptive parents are arguing is that the word Indian in the Constitution should itself be unconstitutional because it's a race-based term. And Indian was used in the Constitution to refer to Indian tribes, sovereign nations that predate the United States. And in creating the Constitution, what the framers did is they said, we don't want each individual state having diplomatic, sovereign-to-sovereign -sovereign relationships with tribal nations. We want that to be exclusively a function of the federal government because it's going to be too chaotic. Different states are going to have different relationships, and we don't trust them to do that. We just want the federal government to handle that. And so in creating the Constitution, they assigned that responsibility to Congress. And that's what the Constitution says. And it says, basically, Congress has exclusive authority over Indian affairs. And in doing that, that also means that Congress has the exclusive authority to effectuate the trust, the treaty, trust duties, and responsibilities that the United States has. And so what I mean by that is that the United States exists today with the all of the land that the United States governs because that land was not just given to the United States, but exchanged through treaties signed with tribal nations. That land was exchanged in exchange for promises that the United States promised, whether it's housing, shelter, healthcare, education, um, trade, treaty rights, such as fishing rights, such as hunting rights, you could name it. There's jurisdictional rights that were promised. My great, 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 great grandfather signed one of our Cherokee Nation treaties. And in exchange, we were promised a seat in Congress. So, you know, lots of promises. The U.S. Constitution, when the framers wrote it, they knew how important this treaty-making process was. So they actually put in there that treaties are, quote, the supreme law of the land. So it is Congress's job, according to the Constitution, to effectuate the supreme law of the land. Once a treaty is signed with a tribal nation under the Constitution, it's the supreme law of the land. And Congress has the exclusive authority under the U.S. Constitution to uphold that. If Congress can't use the word Indian to refer to citizen of a tribal nation because that's now unconstitutional, what is Congress going to do? And I mean, we, you could say, well, they'll use the word Native American. Okay, well, then people like the Brackeens are going to come after that. They could say tribal citizen. I mean, at the end of the day, Indian is the equivalent of tribal citizen, citizen of a tribal nation. If that 
somehow is prohibited by the 14th Amendment. How is Congress supposed to uphold all of these treaty trust duties and responsibility that the U U.S. Constitution says is the supreme law of the land? And that's a real conflict, and it'll be a real problem for us because, um, you know, Congress is sort of the body of the government that we go to to deal with issues like violence against Native women or the fact that our Indian children are being taken at higher rates than, you know, from our homes and than any other population in the United States, which is why ICWA was passed. And so how will we protect our people if Congress is all of a sudden unable to fulfill its constitutional role and duties in protecting our nations and our citizens? So that's one issue. Beyond Indian country, I think there's a huge question about how this case would spill over to affect other marginalized groups, because I think what we're really seeing at the core is a revision of what the 14th Amendment was and what it was meant to be. Because if you look back at the 14th Amendment, it was, um, it was real blunt here. It was not passed to protect white people. That was not a concern that the drafters of the 14th Amendment had. They were doing just fine. Um, I'm, of course, you know, there's a history of working class white people being taken advantage of, but the focus of the 14th Amendment were newly freed slaves who were being discriminated against under the law. And Congress felt that it was important that they require all states to treat everyone equally under the law, freed slave or white person. That was the focus. So to turn that on its head and to say now, which is certainly the argument that's being made in many courts, is that somehow the 14th Amendment was passed to protect white people who get discriminated against in affirmative action cases in universities, or you name the context, but that is the litigation strategy of some folks on the far right. And so what they're trying to do is change the fundamental foundation of the 14th Amendment to, to say actually what the, the reason the 14th Amendment was passed in 1868 was to make sure that our government never talks about race, never acknowledges race, treats everyone the same. And that is actually not what the framers intended, right? They were fully acknowledging that if you're a newly freed slave, you're living in a very different reality than a white plantation owner, right? <laughs> and so you actually need protections under the law that that white plantation owner doesn't need because they're actually more than 100% protected under the law right now, you know? And so to take that history away and to act like the true purpose of the 14th Amendment was just to treat everyone exactly the same and not to recognize our histories, where we come from, and why we have the ongoing injustices under the law and in, within institutions and the entire framework of the United States here today, you know, that is a far-right agenda. And taking down the Indian Child Welfare Act and getting Indian to be de declared um, a race-based term under the 14th Amendment is a part of that larger agenda. And I think that's why we all need to be concerned and all working together, because it really is a revisionist history of let's just actually literally change what the 14th Amendment means, which is very scary. Yeah. You know, oh gosh, I like want to stop and listen to everything you just said like a second time <laughs> because there's so much information and I, I'm just so thankful to be having this conversation with you, MK. You know, um, our listeners are primarily advocates, social workers, you know, service providers in the human service field that really care for families. Some are, you know, culture-specific organizations, but a lot of them are mainstream or come from mainstream organizations. Some are individuals. And I would say that all, all of our listeners care for families. If you had to suggest or recommend 
one or two steps that folks can take to help protect and support ICWA? What would those be? That's such a great question. Um, You know, I think right now, and a lot of people are asking this question because, you know, honestly, I think there are a number of people who feel a little bit hopeless about what happens in the U.S. Supreme Court. And I I understand that feeling. It's um, a part of our United States government that's very removed from our citizenry, you know, even more so than the president, which is very removed already, and and the Congress, you know, in terms of we don't elect the justices and they're appointed for life and it can feel like nothing we do would impact what happens there. But I would urge people to not completely lose the faith and that actually storytelling and things like this podcast make a huge difference. And I say that because if we're educating ourselves and then if we're going out in public and talking to people we know, posting on social media, encouraging the mainstream news and media outlets to cover this and to cover it from an indigenous perspective. You know, certain outlets like the New York Times have done a horrible job covering this Supreme Court case from an indigenous perspective. And there's actually a little bit of a conflict of interest because the law firm representing the the Brackeens, Gibson Dunn, also represents the New York Times on all the First Amendment issues. And they haven't really been forthright about disclosing that. And they've been writing these kind of hit pieces that sort of attack the Indian Child Welfare Act and don't present the full picture. So there's concerns with how certain media outlets are portraying this story. And justices and their clerks, they watch Fox News, they listen to NPR, they read the Wall Street Journal, they read the New York Times, they read the Washington Post. So the more we can reach those reporters and those journalists. And also I wish those news outlets would all hire indigenous journalists, but not everyone does. So we're really relying oftentimes on non-native folks to tell our stories and hoping they'll tell them in an unbiased way, which doesn't always happen, to get it right. And I think that, you know, people can say, well, I don't really know anyone at those outlets. What can I possibly do? And we're living in an age where social media has a huge impact. And I say that, and I'm really not very good at it, (laughs) you know, and I'm still trying to figure out, we have two teenage boys and they do TikTok and Snapchat. And I do not understand, but I need to learn because it's like a little frightening what happens there. But, um, you know, I think that uh, the National Indian Child Welfare Association has been doing a campaign using hashtag protect ICWA. So it's just protect ICWA. And don't discount how much of a difference you can make by posting to that hashtag. Because if we get trending, if we all of a sudden have a lot of people posting to that hashtag saying we demand the Supreme Court to this or that, that's something we can also as advocates take to these these news outlets and say, this is a big deal issue. It's not just important to Indian country. Look at all, look at all this traction it's getting. It's trending on Twitter. You know, so I think I would encourage people to follow the National Indian Child Welfare Association, NICWA, on social media, um, and to also use their hashtag and to just, you know, never underestimate the power of your voice if you're at all connected, like, to adoption. I mean, Wendy, your story is powerful, you know? And I think people, um, a lot of people, because of sort of the amount of money that's been donated or funded into the those working against us in this case. There's a lot of money out there creating narratives that what ICWA does is takes children who have, quote unquote, they keep saying Indian ancestry, which is really offensive because if you are Indigenous today, 
yes, you have indigenous ancestors, but you yourself are indigenous. You don't just have, it's like saying someone who's black or Hispanic or Latinx or Asian today has a certain ancestry. They also are living that identity right now. And to just classify as people who have that ancestry, it again puts us in the past and creates this false narrative that we aren't here today, which is like, you know, it's all part of the Thanksgiving narrative. It's it's part of like, it's a very huge piece of Americana to, to just be like, well, you know, there were the Trail of Tears in the 1800s and it's just too bad. None of them are really, the real Indians are gone, right? The real Indians were like Geronimo and Tecumseh and, and Sitting Bull and they're just not here anymore. And that's not true. We are, and we're not Indian because we have Indian ancestors. We're Indian because we are indigenous and we're here and alive today. But Again, this other side has poured a ton of funding into this PR strategy to say these poor kids who aren't really indigenous, right? They're just they're just like you and me. They're not indigenous, but they have one Indian ancestor, which is also not true. If they have one Indian ancestor four generations ago, then everyone in between them is also indigenous. <laughs> but anyways, they'll just say, oh, they have this indigenous ancestor. And because of that, they're ripped out of the loving arms of a loving family and forced to live with strangers on a reservation. And they just, you know, have these crazy narratives that are false and racially prejudiced and really harmful and based on stereotypes. And so again, the more our allies uh, support sort of what the what action groups like NIQA are doing, I think the more we can draw focus on these harmful stereotypes and these false narratives and, and create a groundswell to respond to it. Yeah. Mary Kay, I, I, you know, I've heard so much in under 30 minutes, and I'm just so grateful that this episode will air and that the expertise and the, the experience and the knowledge that you have can be shared in, in our, you know, platform. I, you know, as you were answering that last question on, on what folks can do, I was thinking about what you were saying and how that goes, that aligns with what we at Futures believe, you know, it's like another way of asking that is how do you lift those stories of the most impacted, right? Like the solution cannot come if it's removed from the folks that it's impacted or has impacted. And you most certainly unpack that for us in such a heartfelt and comprehensive way. I want to thank you on behalf of uh, futures uh, and Promising Futures and the Pivot Towards Promising Futures team for your time today. I hope that this is only the beginning and I would love to, to have you back and, and continue a part two and maybe three of this conversation. But thank you so much for your time today. And we look forward to continuing our conversations. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for creating the space to have this conversation about such a critical issue that affects all of Indian country and our tribal nations and our native people. And I just appreciate all the work that you all do and to all the advocates out there. Your work is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly hard, but incredibly important. And I, for one, really appreciate it. Everyone, you know, who's working in Indian country appreciates the work that you do. And so thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of The Pivot Towards Promising Futures. And now to conclude today's episode, we'd love to share a poem titled Remember by Joy Harjo. Remember the sky that you were born under. Know each of the stars' stories. Remember the moon. Know who she is. 
Remember the sun's birth at dawn, that is the strongest point of time. Remember the sundown and the given away tonight. Remember your birth, how your mother struggled to give you form and breath. You are evidence of her life and her mother's and hers. Remember your father, he is your life also. Remember the earth whose skin you are, red earth, black earth, yellow earth, white earth, brown earth. We are earth. Remember the plants, trees, animal life, who all have their tribes, their families, their histories too. Talk to them. Listen to them. They are alive poems. Remember the wind. Remember her voice. She knows the origin of this universe. Remember you are all people and all people are you. Remember you are the universe and this universe is you. Remember all is in motion, is growing, is you. Remember language comes from this. Remember the dance language is, that life is. Remember. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Pivot. Please be sure to check out show notes for any resources referenced during the podcast. You will also find discussion questions, which we hope will help you, our listener, continue dialogue around these very important topics. If you know of any work happening in your community that would add to the national discussion generated by this series, please email us a summary of the efforts and work taking place to the pivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. That email again is the pivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. We will be sure to get back to you. Last but certainly not least, we would like to express our deepest gratitude to Chance Taylor for all his support in editing all the episodes and to Sudubi Kuke for producing the series. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, your host, Wendy Mota.